0: If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you this morning to turn with me to the end of the New Testament and look at the letter of Jude. Today, we're taking a short break from our series in Luke, and we're going to spend a few weeks thinking about how we use our time and resources in a short series called Don't Waste Your Summer. And some of you will immediately recognize uh, I'm riffing on a book that is uh, well known to many of us and that we give out to all of our graduates called Don't Waste Your Life. And certainly that's that's a helpful book. But we want to think more specifically about how we live, how we serve, how we are Christians during the summer, because it's during the summer that life naturally has a feel of slowing down. Uh, This is driven by the fact that uh, school is out, that very often community events increase, and this is normally the time when we go on vacation, as is evidenced even by looking around us this morning. Some people are already on vacation. And none of that is wrong, none of that is bad. The question is simply, how do we respond to that, that kind of cultural feel of slowing down, of relaxing, of doing things differently than we normally would. I think typically the response is well-reflected, well-illustrated in a t-shirt that I saw recently. And at the top it says, my summer has been going well so far. And it was a picture of, of, a, of a stick figure, uh, a man on a diving board uh, positioned for a perfect three-point dive. And as he goes off the diving board, you see his progress uh, listed out there. And as he begins to come down, he puts his hands where they belong. He goes into a twist, but then he lands on a couch comfortably sitting with a remote in front of a television. And, and very often that, that's how the summer feels, doesn't it? Uh, We just want to unwind, we want to relax, we want to take it easy. And let me be clear from the outset that I'm not saying, I'm not saying that there is no place for rest or leisure. I'm not saying that. I don't even think those things are inherently sinful because God has wired us to be a people who require rest and leisure. Uh... Stepping aside from the fact that God commands explicitly this principle in the Old Testament and the observance of a Sabbath for the Old Covenant people, even today, secular scientists have studied the effects of working seven days a week on the human body, and the results aren't good. Mental and physical strain, a decline in health, a premature death, all result from people who don't know how to stop, who don't know how to relax, who don't know how to enjoy leisure time. So let me be clear from the outset that though leisure activities, the opportunities for rest and relaxation may go up in the summer, I'm not saying that any of that is inherently bad, whether it's the summer or across the rest of the year. But what I do want to target in on and warn us about is the tendency, is the tendency to forget who we are and how we're called to live God's people, even in the midst of opportunities for rest and leisure. On the one hand, those things should never become so important that they crowd out the normal routines of work and ministry, right? God does not go on vacation during the summer in the sense of He stops being God. And therefore, even when we are on vacation, we don't take a vacation for being God's people. So, so one of the things that is uh, in some sense, very difficult but in other ways very fulfilling is that when we go away on vacation we begin to think where are we going to go to church on Sunday and, and trying to find a good church that we can fellowship with that we can meet new people and we can see what God is doing in that area I know when I talk to other friends even pastors who are Christians that is the last thing they want to do is go to church on vacation but as God's people even in the midst of rest leisure we, we don't stop being Christians We don't stop stop having our identity in Christ and feeling the call that we normally should have. In fact, even in the midst of what might be lighter schedules and less responsibility over the coming months, I want to encourage you not simply to fall down on the couch, but to leverage the extra time you have for being intentional in pursuing the basics of Christian life. So some of you have different work hours or some of you don't have any school. What are you going to do with that time? Others of you have more time with your kids or your grandkids because they don't have any school. How are you going to invest in them during that extra time? Others of you will notice very little difference because you work a 40-hour, a 50-hour-a-week job Monday through Friday, maybe even some Saturdays, and there's no break in the summer. So the question is, well, do I not get anything out of this message? No, not not at all. Because the question I would put to you is, are you making the best use of your normal time? Not just the summertime, but your normal time. And so over the next few weeks, what I simply want to do is to challenge us to be thoughtful and intentional so that we don't waste our summer. We don't look back a few million years into eternity and think, you know what? Uh, maybe, Maybe I could have did something more than what I had done. We want to begin this morning by thinking about the fundamental, the most fundamental part of our lives as Christians, namely our ongoing relationship with God. We want to think about this from two verses at the end of Jude, verses 20 and 21. And if you'll remember, some of you probably more easily than others if you've been in our community groups this year, Jude is writing to a group of Christians, instructing them about the need to fight for the Christian faith. He is telling them that they need to fight for the faith. That means knowing essential Christian beliefs and protecting those beliefs from false teachers. But it also means contending for the faith in our own faith. That is, being secure in our trust in God as we hold to an orthodox view of God. And so with this in mind, Jude gives several practical instructions throughout the letter to God's people, but I want to focus in on what he says about how we are to stay close to God in verses 20 through 21. Now just before these verses that we're going to look at, Jude is describing false believers who live ungodly lives and disrupt the unity of the church. In contrast, he says, but you... But you, beloved, that is you, the people of God, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This is God's word. In the midst of false teaching in the church and prejudice from outside the church, how can we remain in a growing, loving relationship with our Heavenly Father? That's what Jude is thinking about. And taking the principles that he he gives there, I I want to move the focus a little bit and say it like this, in the midst of a culture that is pushing for us to relax, to to be slack, to even be lazy for a period of time, a a, a time of of vacation, a time of, of getting out of the routine. How do we remain steadfast and growing and loving in our relationship with our Heavenly Father? That's what I want us to see from Jude verses 20 through 21. Even as we read that, as we heard that command to keep ourselves in the love of God, that may even sound odd to you as an odd verse to be in the Bible because we're used to hearing, especially in this country, cliches like, well, God loves everybody the same or God's love is always unconditional. And here we have a conditional Keep yourselves in the love of God, implying that it's possible not to keep yourself in the love of God, but somehow the love of God would change in your life. So how are we to think about that? How are we to understand that? Well, before we think about fulfilling that command, I want to take a step back and have us think about the larger theology that is behind what Jude is saying. Specifically, I think we need to understand the complexity of God's love. We need to understand the complexity of God's love think about all the different ways that you love in this life, okay? Uh, on, On a serious side, right? I love my wife. I love my kids. I love this church. On a less serious side, we will often say things like, I love chocolate, or I love deep dish pizza, or I love my dog. Now, I understand some people confuse dog and child, but that's a different sermon, um, but I, I, I love taking care of the lawn. I love my job. We talk about loving, and I don't think we're just using that word wrongly. I, th- I think we do love, but we love in different ways, don't we? It would be weird and obscene if I loved my children the same way I love my wife and the same way I loved you, the same way I love my dog, right? Some people, again, have that problem. Thankfully, it's probably not an issue here. So the question is, if we are complex in the way that we love, and we can love different people and different things in different ways, why can't God? And the reality is, God can. We are His image bearers, we reflect Him. So the reason why we are complex in our ability to love is because God is complex in His ability to love. Now, if this was secret church, or, or we had an extra two hours here in addition to what I want to say here, well, in order to... To show you this over and over and over again from the Bible, what I would do would just be to walk through a very helpful little book, maybe only a hundred pages, by D.A. Carson called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, because what he shows is how, in at least five clear ways, God is complex in the way that he loves. And he untangles uh, and, and uh, the, the wrong thinking about this glorious doctrine of God's love. He rescues it from misunderstanding and the trite beliefs that we often say that. That we have about that by showing us God's revelation of himself in the scriptures, but we don't have that extra two hours. So what I want to do is simply, rather than walk through those five ways, highlight two ways, because these two ways are clearly seen in this letter of Jude's. First, we need to understand how God shows his unconditional love for salvation, how God shows his unconditional love for salvation. We talk about God's unconditional love, but what does that that look like? What does that mean? Well, the salvation given by God to sinners is said to be based upon, driven by His love for sinners. So here's a couple of verses. Many of these you will recognize. 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him romans five eight God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us in love God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of his glorious grace, and perhaps more, most famously John three sixteen for God so loved the world, this is how he loved the world, that He gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Again and again and again, the sending of God's Son, Jesus Christ, for the salvation of God's people, namely sinful humanity like you and me, is driven, is motivated by, is the result of God's love for His people. God's love for sinners. And what the Bible is clear about over and over and over again, that that salvation that we experience, because it comes from God's love, God's sovereign, unconditional love, it doesn't have anything to do with us. Meaning, we don't work to keep our salvation, we don't work to earn our salvation. We, we, the only role we have in the salvation that God gives in Christ is being on the receiving end. We are the recipients of His love, which is shown in the grace of Him giving us something that we don't deserve and the mercy of withholding something we do deserve, namely forgiveness of sins, which we don't deserve, but He gives, and condemnation to hell, which we do deserve, but He withholds when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We trust in Him. The Bible says our lives are united to Christ. His death becomes our death. His resurrected life becomes our life. We are seated in the heavenly places through him. And the Bible puts no condition on this. So I was just reading this week about a commentary that was produced for the people of Cambodia on Romans. And the author said that in the culture, um, the the very popular and important phrase about uh, karma is do good, receive good. That's how they live their life. If they do good, they will receive good. And wanting to speak clearly into that culture, the gospel of Jesus Christ, he titled his commentary on the book of Romans, receive good, do good. Rece- See what he did? He completely flipped that around because that's what the Bible does. You look through the book of Romans chapters 1 through 11, is all about the good, the grace, the love that we have received from God. But then chapters 12 through 16 is about the good that should flow from our lives as a result of that. And so that's the point that I'm getting at here. And that is that there is the unconditional love of God that we think about is seen in the salvation that he provides. And we see this right in verse one of Jude. He writes to Christians and says, I'm writing to you who are called beloved in God, the father and kept for Jesus Christ. It's those that are his disciples, those that are saved. It is an unconditional love. They are beloved in God the Father, therefore they are called and they are kept. All true Christians, because they are the object of God's love, will be kept by God's power. And so at the end of this letter, in in verse 24, he says that God is able, because he loves you so much, because he is so powerful, because he is your heavenly Father, he is able to keep his people from stumbling to present them blameless before the presence of his glory. That's the basis for everything in the Christian life. That's the gospel. We haven't earned it. We don't deserve it. But God's unconditional love brings salvation to us. But that's not the totality of our relationship with God. We also see, secondly, the conditional love of God in fellowship. God's conditional love in fellowship. Flowing from the benefits of our union with Christ, our salvation with Christ, comes the blessings of communion with Christ. Christ. Think about this. God's salvation, God's salvation does not come to us as a governor's pardon. Now, I, you know, I, am sure that in the course of history that there has been people who have actually received governor's pardons, but all I know about is like the Perry Mason version, right? So the guy is being walked the electric chair and people are sweating. You know that he's innocent. And suddenly, you know, the phone rings, the warden picks it up. It's the governor, you know, you're free, you know, and he's like, ah, hey! you know, but, um, in, in real life, it's probably much less immediate, much less sensational from what I understand. The, the, the lawyer presents together a packet of materials. He, he puts together evidence in a case and sends it to the governor to try and show that the courts were wrong. They missed some kind of evidence that, that they, the jury was not impartial, that the prosecutor did not do his job well or whatever it is to show this man who was declared guilty is really innocent and he should be let go. And so the governor weighs that and is able to exercise, if he has good judgment to do so, a good reason to do so, his executive privilege to pardon the individual, to commute their sentence. But then that's the end of it. I mean, what do you get a letter? Maybe. So, so maybe it's a phone call to the warden, to the justice people, but basically the governor has no relationship with you. That's it. And the Bible says that that's the opposite of what happens in salvation given by God to sinners. Number one, you are guilty. You don't deserve the pardon, but he gives you the pardon because he loves you. And more than just pardoning you, he adopts you. He brings you into his family, into the fellowship between himself, his son, and his spirit that has existed eternally forever. So so in 1 John John writes and he says, We're writing because we have fellowship with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ, and we want your joy, our joy to be complete by you knowing that you have fellowship with Him as well, because you've put your faith in Christ. So the whole the whole movement of salvation is not just, although it certainly involves a legal declaration, you've been forgiven, you're not guilty. That is simply one part of a larger relational love that God extends to us in bringing us into his family. And yet, as with any relationship, the way that we return God's affection or fail to return God's affection will in some way also affect how he shows affection to us. In other words, the Bible is clear that in our communion with God, when we sin, we can grieve him. Paul says, don't grieve the spirit in Ephesians because of your sin. That means we sin as God's people that affects God. He is grieved by our sin. We can drift away from Him. That's what Hebrews warns about, right? That, that we can become cold in our relationship with God and begin walking away from God. We can dishonor Him with our lives, but conversely, we can cause God to rejoice over us. We can grow in our intimacy and our relationship with Him by our love for Him and our obedience towards Him. So what we need to see is we have two different kinds of love that we experience from God. One is unconditional, has nothing to do with us. It will never change. He is determined. He is going to save a people. He will send His Son to do it and He calls us by His Spirit to faith in Christ. Unconditional love. But then there's conditional love. There is the intimacy and the, of the fellowship that we have with God, and that can change. It can wax and wane over time, depending on us, not God. You'll notice in James, it says, if we draw near to God, He will draw near to us. The one thing it never says is, God stepped away from us. God never says, ah, I'm done with you. God, God doesn't do that because he's unconditionally committed to saving us. But the intimacy, the fellowship that we have with him might change based upon us. Are we responding to the love that we've been given with love back or not? So think about how these things come together in John 15. Jesus is talking to his disciples who are already in him. And here's what he says. He says, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you, therefore abide in my love. My heavenly Father, God, has loved me. I have loved you. I'm going to die for you. I've come for you. But now you need to abide in my love. You need to remain in my love. How do we do that, Jesus? The next verse. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus says, I show my love for the heavenly Father, for God, because I obey him in all that he says. The way that you can show love for me and love for the Father is by command, by obeying what I command, And so I've used this illustration before, but I think it's the most helpful way to think about this. How these two loves relate is just to think about um, what should be any parent's relationship to their child in this life. I, I've told my kids multiple times, hopefully drilling it down in their minds, that uh, I love them because they're my child and that's not going to change. They could do some pretty rotten and crummy things. They could disobey uh, with... with a large amount of rebellion and hubris and hatred towards me, but they're still my children and I'm still going to love them. That being said, when they do sin, when they do disobey, that doesn't mean I want to pal around with them in that moment. That doesn't mean I want to be buddies with them. I want to curl up on the couch and watch a movie with them. They have strained the relationship. I might have to discipline them in some way. And therefore, we need to work at repairing the friendship the relationship the fellowship that exists between parent and child but even if they're adults and they go off the reservation and they make all kinds of terrible decisions and our relationship is not good on that level doesn't mean i ever stop loving them doesn't mean i ever cast them off and say you're not like my, my child anymore And that is what we see between these verses in Jude and throughout the Bible. There is an unconditional love of God towards us as people. It's never going to change. You're never going, if you're truly his child, you're never going to stop being his child. He won't love you any more or any less in that way. And yet there is also the intimacy that comes from our fellowship, our relationship with him, and that can change based upon our actions. We can either commit ourselves to loving God and to pursuing him, or we can allow ourselves to drift away, to ignore the love that he has given to us and grow cold in our affections for him. And so what I want to encourage you then, the reason why we're going through is because Great temptation for all of our lives, but especially the summer for some of us is to allow our affection for God to grow cold, to not be diligent in our pursuit of loving, intimate fellowship with him. So Jude gives us some very specific help here on how to do that, to how to ensure that we pursue the fellowship of God's love. And that's the second thing we want to see this morning, that we should pursue the fellowship of God's love. She says in verse 20, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now notice those of you that are English geeks, there are three participles that modify the main exhortation. For those of you that are not English geeks, there are three verbs that end in ing that are affected by the central command, keep. In verse 21. So how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Jude says do three things. Build, pray, and wait. Build, pray, and wait. So first, we are to build up our knowledge of God. That's the first thing that he says. That we're building ourselves up in our most holy faith. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, I think what Jude has in mind here is something very similar to what his big brother Jesus said when he was preaching. And he told a story of two men that built homes. One built on the sand, the other built on a rock. And the same storm blew through. The guy on the sand lost everything, including his life. But the guy who had built his house on a solid foundation was saved. He was preserved. And Jesus says at the end, those who listen to my teaching and believe and obey are like the guy who built on the rock. And I think Jude is saying something similar here. One of the ways that we keep ourselves in love with God, that we keep ourselves close to God is by continuing to deepen in our knowledge of God. In other words, studying the doctrine of God should lead us to greater love for God. Theology should lead to doxology. The more you understand who God is and what he has done for you, the more you should want to naturally love and worship him. So if you want to take God lightly, if you want to love him lightly, then take the Bible and theology and doctrine lightly. But if you don't want to treat God lightly, if you don't want to take Him lightly, if you want to know Him and love Him deeply, then you've got to think deeply about Him and what He says about Himself in the Word. That's what, that's what Jude is getting at here. We build ourselves up in the most holy faith. The faith, not just a faith. The doctrine, the teaching about who God is that the church has always believed. So practically speaking this summer, what can you do to build yourself up in the most holy faith? Well, first of all, I would just say, make a plan to read. Make a plan to read. Not long ago, we handed out a personal disciple-making guide, and part of that plan was a, there was a component that talked about the need for being in the Bible. Now, if you didn't utilize that tool, I am encourage you to take time now to think about that specific part of it. In the Word of God, we have the, the one true fount of all theology, of all right thinking about God. So dwell deep in it. Come with a big cup and keep drinking and drinking and drinking from this fountain. What does that look like? Well, again, it might look like all kinds of different things. It depends on where you are now and what you do and what you might be tempted to not do. But if you've got extra time, and most of us have lots of extra time, not just for leisure, but for other things as well, Then what should you do? Well, there's one thing you could do, and that is read the whole Bible over the summer. Uh, You can read the whole Bible in about 90 days if you read 14 chapters a day, and that's giving you a couple of days off as well. If you divide the number of chapters by 90 days, you get, I think, 13.2. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not going to read 13 chapters and then, uh, you know, 20% of a chapter. I'm going to read a whole chapter for the most part. So that's why I say round to 14, you can't go wrong. You get sick, you sleep in, you forget, whatever, you'll be fine. Some of you say, I'm not ready for that, right? Just pick one or two books of the Bible and read them over and over and over again. Maybe borrow a commentary from a guy who has got a library lined with them and, and dig deeper. That's me, in case you missed that one or you're asleep. Um, and, and dig deeper into one book of the Bible that's, that's going gonna to expand your mind in ways you've never thought of before in terms of God's Word and His character and how He has saved us. But then remember that that as much as we, we need to be a people of the book, and that's our first priority, God has gifted throughout generations, teachers and preachers who are able to take the theology of the Bible and make it easily understood for us and practical for us. And so I would say, pick a book or two, not just on Christian living, but a good theology, some kind of theology work and dig into that and understand it over the course of the summer. Now, I know a lot of you feel like that you're not good at reading or you don't feel comfortable to read a lot. And I want to encourage you along two lines. First of all, just remember reading is a skill like anything else. The more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. And there's at least two or three people in this congregation that will tell you when they got saved, they weren't readers. They weren't readers, but people pushed them to read. And now they love reading. They they probably read more than I do in the course of of a week. They they love it. Why? Because they know it is a means to growing in their relationship with God. So, So I want to encourage you, try maybe to be a better reader, but in the meantime, use audio resources. There's books. There's certainly the Bible for free online that you can download and load up on your car or whatever you want to do. There's sermon series. There's lectures. You can go online and take seminary courses for free. Do whatever you need to do to deepen in your knowledge of God so that you can better keep yourself in the love of God. However you go about it. Plan for what you will read, when you will read, and how you will read. Secondly, I would say make a plan to memorize. Make a plan to memorize. It's not enough to just read and think about God's Word. Store it up in your mind and your heart. Follow the example of Jesus and countless other believers before Him and after Him. Make God's Word something you will always have with you. Something that will always be a part of you. Every week we have those fighter verses that are intentionally designed, that are chosen to help you fight off sin. But take something like Romans eight, or or, or some other great passage of the Bible that 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 summarizes a chunk of theology about who God is. Think about Colossians chapter one or Ephesians chapter one and and, and commit that chapter to your memory so that in the midst of temptation, in the midst of all kinds of things, you'll be able to draw up from the wellspring of the truthfulness of God's word and immediately take encouragement from it. Jude says, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we keep ourselves in the love of God by being built up in our most holy faith. But then secondly, secondly, we also need to pray in the Spirit of God. Be built up in your knowledge of God. And now, secondly, pray in the Spirit of God. Jude's instruction here is very much connected to what he has just said about building. Praying and building go together. Because it's one thing to know lots of information about God. It's another thing to have that information affect your life, right? So what does James say? James say that the devil knows just as much theology or better theology than you do about God. But it doesn't affect his life. He rebels. He says, that may be who God is, but I don't like it and I'm going to live contrary to that. So, so it's not much good if all we do is read, 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 and never connect the mind and the heart. And the quickest way to connect the mind and the heart is by prayer. Not just for theology, but for anything. You have somebody that that hates you, you have somebody that doesn't like you, have somebody who gets under your skin, Jesus says, love your enemies. How am I supposed to do that? Well, what's the next thing he says? Love your enemies and pray for them. Why? It's very hard to hate someone if you're praying for them every day, that God would bless them and open their eyes and be good to them. Suddenly, what you know to be true up here begins to migrate down here. And you're not just thinking, I got to be good to them. I got to be good to them. Suddenly, welling up from within you is love for them is a genuine desire to be good for them. So likewise, when it comes to God, he says, pray in the spirit. Now, how do we do that? Is that like tongues or some uh, extraordinary experience? Well, I don't think so. Because every time this phrase comes up, you see very closely to it is this idea of the word of God or the truth of God. And so I think what, what he has in mind here is, again, what Jesus talks about when he talks about praying in His name. That means we can't just pray for whatever we want and then say, and in Jesus' name, amen, and think God's going to honor it. When Jesus says, pray in my name, He means pray for the kind of things that I would pray for, pray for the kind of things that would honor me, that would be in line with my purposes for your life. To do otherwise is the epitome of taking the Lord's name in vain. Likewise, the Spirit is desiring to conform us to the image of Christ. And part of the way he does that, Paul says in Galatians 4, is to put within us a desire to pray. Now, he gives us a desire to pray, but how does he want to pray? Well, he wants it to pray in line with what he wants to accomplish for our life, which is conforming us to the image of Christ. How do we know what that looks like? How do we know how that takes place? Simple, God's word tells us those things. So the same Spirit that inspired the Word, Peter says that men did not create fables when they wrote down the Scriptures. They were born along, they were carried, they were inspired by God's Spirit. So what is written down is the very Word of God. So the same Spirit who inspired the Word, I think, desires us to pray the Word. Because in this way, we'll always be praying for His will. So I don't know what God's will for my life is. Open the Bible. What What does it say? That's what God wants you to do. It's who God wants you to be. It's what God wants for your life, okay? If we are interpreting it correctly, all right? Otherwise, we become a cult. So practically speaking, I'll just say this. We just talked about reading the Bible. Tie your scripture or your praying to your Bible reading. Uh, One of the things that we just taught in the women's leadership class a few months ago was uh, whatever you are reading in the Bible, at the end, stop and say, ask yourself, what does this lead me to? Rejoice in, repent of, or request from God. Three words, they all start with the same letter, rejoice, repent, request, and suddenly the book that the Spirit inspired becomes your prayer book. Any passage in the Bible becomes an opportunity for you to pray, okay? Now, here's, here's where it gets rough on the practicalities, okay? Are you ready for this? How are you going to pray in the Spirit? How are you going to make sure you have time for that, that you remember to do that? Turn off your phone. I know some of you just about had a heart attack when I said that, right? Because because we love our phones now, right? They're smartphones. They're intelligent. They tell us things that we need. Well, maybe not so much. Okay, so maybe you're not going to turn off your phone. Okay, I, I saw an article where we're talking about New York City and parties. They had a special tray where people could drop off their cell phones on the way in, so they could actually talk to one another at dinner. And I just thought that that's never going to work. That's you. People will never come back to your party if you ask them to do that. It is it is attached to our hip, right? So, hey, so here so here's what I'll say. If you don't turn the phone off, disable the apps that are yelling at you all the time, right? Someone mentions you on Facebook or Twitter, you get a little vibrate or you get a ding or you get a or whatever it is. Turn that off, disable it. If it's really important, you can go later and check and see what's going on. You don't need the email right away. There's lots of things that we just don't, you know, I don't need to to see the top 25 headlines of the news every five minutes because I'm bored. And that's what happens. We default to, I don't have something to do. What am I going to do? I'm going to go online. I'm going to see what's going on, what's happening in their life, what's going on here, who posted this, what's happening in my favorite sports team or whatever it is. That, that's the easiest way to fritter away and waste the time that God has given to you. Again, it's not inherently wrong to have a phone. I have a phone. I, I get, may have a lot of useful things for that phone. I have a lot of non-useful things for that phone. It's not a matter of it's bad to have a phone. It's a matter of is it distracting you from doing something better? Then take a break. Take a break disable the apps, and then proactively leverage that technology for something good. On my phone right now, I have three alarms that go off every day reminding me for different people at different times to pray, okay? One of them you might like to know is Chris Sweet. Alarm goes off at 6 o'clock in the morning at 6.05, is telling me, pray for Chris. Why? Because otherwise, my, I'm going to forget, okay? Day, day gets very busy. Uh, at the middle of the day, when I typically take a lunch break, it's telling me spiritual check-in. I I, I need to st- stop and take a few minutes and evaluate my morning. How have I been doing? Have I have I blown it this morning? Have I have I been unkind to my my wife or my kids? Have I just been lazy and just piddle around looking at stuff that didn't matter? Uh, the capacity for sin in the human heart is endless and, and so is mine. So it's a check-in. Do, do, I, do I need to say, God, I, I am sorry for how I just spent the last five hours of the life you've, you've given me. Help me to get reoriented on, on where I'm supposed to be. And at the end of the night, it's, it's my prayer list. It's the things that, that I have that I regularly go through. So, so what have I done? I, I've taken a, an amoral piece of technology, it's neither good or bad, and I've turned it in to be a tool for good. To remind me, hey, I need to be praying in the spirit. I need to be spending time with God lest I drift away from him and lose whatever intimacy I have gained over the last 20 or so years. Build, pray, finally. Jude says, wait for the sun. You should wait for the sun. Like so many of the New Testament writers, Jude is urging his reader to look beyond their present circumstances. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Jude says believers should remember that a day is coming when Christ will return for his people. Now, again, think about why Jude is writing here, because they're being infiltrated by false believers. They see disruptions and divisions springing up. Um, They they see uh, discouragement coming to them, and it can lead them to be disillusioned, to drift away from God. And Jesus says, combat that by focusing on the future. Remember, God's mercy is going to be supremely revealed one day when God's son returns for his people. Mercy in ending all the pain of this life. Mercy in loving us despite the sinfulness of our hearts. Mercy in allowing us to see our Savior face to face. And Jude believes that remembering that mercy will allow us to pass on despite difficult circumstances. Pastor and theologian Tom Schreiner summarizes well, he says, one of the means by which we continue in our love for God is if we continue to long for the day when Jesus Christ will show us mercy, when he will grant us the gift of eternal life and we will be perfected forever. Those who take their eyes off their future hope will find their love for God is slowly evaporating and it will be evident that their real love is for the present age. So how do we keep our minds fixed on the future? How do, we, how do we remember? How do we wait patiently for the mercy that is going to be shown to us? Well, again, just a few practical tips here. I think what we should do is end every day by reflecting on the day. And what that might mean is just you, you lay your head down, you turn the lights off, you're getting ready for bed, you just stop and you think about what was the day like? What was the day like? And I hope two things will will happen as a result. First of all, you will feel the joy of the unstoppable love of God and His provision and protection for you each day. We've been well fed. We've enjoyed good health. We have a job, a family, friends, a church. God has often kept your foot from sliding into sin where it might otherwise have gone. Rejoice and be thankful for the kindness of God that day. But secondly think about the day in order to feel the pain of life in this sinful world often of our own sinful hearts at times God was urging you to flee sin and you didn't listen you gave in you read news stories or talked to people who experience pain and tragedy as a result of sin in this world these two things together the the joy of God's kindness and mercy now and the the devastating effects of sin in this life now should, should do two things in our life. Number one, they should remind us of the sinfulness of sin, but they should also cause us to long for the relief of the mercy of God that's going to be revealed in the coming of Jesus Christ. And together, those things should help arm us in the now for loving our Father and remaining intimate with Him. Many, many years ago, Uh, I enjoyed a very close friendship with someone. Uh, We spent a lot of time together, had a lot of fun together, had a lot of serious conversations together. And then over the years, it began uh, to be harder and harder uh, for us to get together, for us to talk, for us to, to spend time together. And ultimately, that came down to one thing. The, the dissolving of that friendship and its intimacy came onto one thing. The guy wouldn't return my emails. I'd be writing to him, asking to get together, how are you doing? And days and weeks, would sometimes months would go by before there was ever a response. I might call and leave a message and I, and I wouldn't get the call back. And whenever contact was made, whenever he would call back, it was always, oh, I'm sorry, I'm busy. I want to know how you're doing. I'll be praying for you. And, and, and I, I've I felt that he was sincere in that, but ultimately, ultimately, all of the intimacy, all of the fellowship, all of the the depth of our friendship that had been built on years and years and years of being together, went away because he failed to act on the relationship. He wouldn't respond to the invitations to be together, to interact, to to know what was happening in one of those lives, and so now I, I still count him a friend, but but. there is is much less depth to that friendship. There is much less intimacy. He is not any longer the first person that I would call if there is difficulty or joy in my life. And and loved ones, the reality is the same thing can happen to our relationship with God. He has given you His Spirit and His calling to you all the time, throughout the day, moment by moment. He is calling you to abide in Christ by having the words of Christ dwell in you. He is calling you to to remain close to Him in fellowship with Him, lovingly experiencing the joy of, of, of being counted as God's child. But when we plug our ears to that call, when we lay aside the Word of Christ in favor of other things, when we allow our desire for, in the summertime, relaxation and fun to outweigh the call of God, then it is very easy for us to drift apart from Him, to lose the intimacy that we once had. And my call this morning is simple. Don't waste your summer like that. Don't, don't allow the, the, the non-sinful fun and relaxing activities that are going to be offered to you to crowd out the essential eternal joy of a growing relationship with God. Father, we're so thankful for your word which shapes us and guides us and directs us and helps us to understand not only who you are, but how we should live in light of you. And I pray that now as we begin to respond with song and by worshiping at your table, that you would continue to be merciful to us, that you would continue to speak by uh, the word that you have given, that our hearts might be drawn up in repentance and faith to you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.